Let's open up to the 16th chapter of Judges, please. The Gospel according to Judges, part 41. We're actually going to be finishing up the account of Samson tonight. We stopped last week on a cliffhanger. Do you remember that? The author of the Judges, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is most certainly, hands down, the best storyteller of all time. Think about it. What other story can compare with the account that is of God's redemption in Christ contained from Genesis all the way to Revelation? Nothing comes close to that. And so we had our passage last week end on a sentence, that, a, a statement that gave us hope and let us know that the story of Samson being used of God was not over, even though he had lived in utter contempt and disregard of God. So verse 22 read very conspicuously, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So let's pick up the reading of the word, beginning at verse 23 in Judges chapter 16, and then we'll pray afterwards. The reading of the word of the Lord. says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they had said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearers' hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars of which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. And the Lord of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle two pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with his all the strength, and the house fell upon the Lord, the Lord's, and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time here in it. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to you that we get to meet together tonight and to open up your word together. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would impart upon to us grace through this means of grace of hearing your word preached that we might be all the more conformed to Christ. Help us to rightly understand your word. Help us, Lord, to not uh, be found having a famine of your word, as we're seeing is quite possibly the case that many uh, churches, Lord, we, we pray, though, that you would let your word be centrally, central and have a, a very strong focus in our life that we might know your will and might know your revelation that you have desired for us to know. Please, Lord, bless our evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah. All right. So the Philistines are Philistines. I, I actually I'm not sure how to say that. Uh, what do you think? Philistines. Philistines. We just watched a video Phyllis. on Samson and Delilah that was horrible with Silas and I. I saw that it was that took a lot of uh, license to it, but um, it was not Maybe. good. And they call them the Philistines all the time in that. So, uh, Jonathan, you had a comment? Yeah. Or, my question. How, how old do we think Samson is? Do we know how old he was? Because it says he judged Israel for 20 years. 20 years? Well, 
Do we know like what age he started? I would guess somewhere between then 36 to 40, maybe 33, right? Because they have a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah at 13, that celebration becoming a man, and then he wanted to get married. So really it's at the start of his marriage when he married that woman in Timna. But we don't know exactly how old he was. So I would say... Get married when he was 13? Possibly. They did do that younger if you were able to provide for your family and you um, that was doable. Uh, so anyways, somewhere, I would say, you know, 35 to 45 range. I might guess. I totally don't know for sure. So back to what we just read. Uh, the Philistines have Samson, and he is this hairless trophy, as Dale Ralph Davis calls him in his commentary. And he's put to work grinding in their, in their storehouses, grinding the crop that in a previous encounter he ended up destroying in a previous year. In chapter 15, Samson is the hero of Israel that embarrasses the Philistines, and especially their god, who we know is false, their god Dagon, or Dagon. But now he's like a beast of burden working in, in Dagon's field. The tables have turned. Remember, Dagon is the god of wheat or of grain. Now, I mentioned the cliffhanger already about last time, but at the same time, it's kind of a strange cliffhanger, if you think about it, because, I mean, of course hair grows back. Uh, when anyone gets a haircut, they expect it to grow back. That's just obvious. It didn't work that way then. It definitely worked that way back then. It's not like a new understanding of things. The, the Philistines <laughs> definitely knew that hair would grow back. So what does this mean if we put ourselves in the place of the Philistines? Well, I think it tells us one of two things about the event. Number one, the Philistines have maybe put a lot of faith in their capture of their destroyer. Uh, it's possible that they think Samson is done and he's finished now, that he's been captured. They see this as a victory of their god Dagon over him, and they don't see there being any way coming back for him at this point. Uh, the spell is broken, as it were. Remember the discussion that was had with Delilah? They, they treated Samson's strength as if it was some sort of magic power that could be dispersed if they just knew the right thing to do. And so maybe they think so they did that, and now his powers are gone, and maybe it's just never going to come back. They don't know. The trick has been broken. Or the Philistines know that he wasn't just that strong. They don't have any idea. They, they, they don't at all. He yanked they, out an entire city gate and dragged it like 300 yeah. miles. The only reason they know he's not that strong is because they were able to finally get a hold of him. Right. I and mean, if you remember, he thought that his power was still going to be there. He woke up from off her nap and was like, I'm still going to go out and destroy the Philistines. And his strength, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. That was that convicting verse that we read last time. Or secondly... And this kind of seems more unlikely because, again, they just, they didn't really, if they, maybe they learned this after the fact, you know, about that he had a Nazarite vow. And so maybe they understand that Samson has now violated the whole thing. Because remember at this point, Samson hasn't really cared about the Nazarite vow. He's done so many things already that would technically violate the vow and make it be over. He's touched dead bodies. He's been immoral. Um, and now his, the last element, his hair is cut. So the vow is actually broken. But again, it was partially broken before that, and partial obedience is still disobedience, right? Partial obedience is absolutely disobedience, still sin. I mean, imagine if your mom or dad said to you, uh, before you play video games, you need to complete your science lesson and your math lesson. And then you completed your science lesson. Okay, (laughs) you completed just your science lesson and half of your math lesson. And then you said, okay, well, I need a break. I'm going to go play video games. Would you be in trouble for that? Yes. You would, right? Because partial obedience is still disobedience. And so Samson has 
disobeyed his vow uh, a long time ago, but maybe they're thinking it's one of those two things, or maybe they think it's a combination of two, those two things. The reality is it's much more than that. Uh, they let his hair grow back, not thinking anything about it. But I think there's a bigger a point here. It's what actually what uh, commentator Dale Ralph Davis calls in his commentary uh, the stupidity of the Philistines. And he strings it out from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 16. And what he means by that is that through Samson's antics in, in engaging with the Philistines is that Yahweh, through Samson, makes the Philistines look dumb over and over and over again. And that this whole little phrase, uh, and his hair grew back, is part of this theme of the stupidity of the Philistines. So, for example, consider the riddle that Samson put the Philistines to. They couldn't figure it out. It was an impossible riddle. He made them look dumb. And then they cheated to figure it out. And so Samson goes and he beats up 30 Philistines and, take, and takes their clothes to give to them. The Philistines are, you know, the stupidity of the Philistines. Then his father-in-law gives away his best to his, his wife, to his best man from the wedding, trying to do a good, a good thing since he thought Samson had abandoned her. Remember that? And so it ends up throwing Samson into a rage. Again, the stupidity of the Philistines. He kills a thousand people with a fresh jawbone of a donkey. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. The gates of, or excuse me, he makes them look dumb. The jawbone of a donkey. They, they lay an ambush for Samson in the morning. Samson sneaks out at night and rips the gates off the city and again makes them look dumb. They try and use Samson's sinful desires to have him give up the secret to his strength. And he fools them three consecutive times. The stupidity of the Philistines. Once with something they've already tried. Well, once with something that the Israelites did. Remember, there was 3,000 Israelites that tied him with ropes, but maybe it wasn't fresh ropes. We're being generous to the Philistines even at that point. Um, also with wet animal guts. And wet animal guts, and then also tying his hair in a loom. And so he even thought he was going to fool the Philistines a fourth time, but he was presuming God's grace and indulging, his, and indulging his sin. And in that, the Lord brought his game to an end. And so we have this section right here um, where it says Samson's hair is starting to grow back. And what that actually is alluding to is that God, is that Yahweh, is once again about to make the Philistines look dumb. That's what I think that's really about, is that Yahweh has been making the Philistines look pretty stupid, pretty dumb, over the course of Samson's career as a judge. And this little phrase, his hair began to grow after having shaved, is a clue that once again, Yahweh is going to make them look dumb. And that makes sense, right? Because the strength of Samson didn't lay in his hair. Of course, he, he lost his strength because the spirit left him. We read that last week. But even think about this. If his hair, if his strength was actually in his hair growing back, and since the Philistines weren't giving him a haircut all the time, Samson would have just broke, up, broke out at some point anyways, right? He could have been grinding the mill, and whenever his, his hair got to a certain length, we don't know how much time passed, he could have just busted out at that point and destroyed a bunch of Philistines. But that's not the key. So the Philistines are once again putting themselves in a position to be made a fool of. Yahweh is going to vindicate his honor. This isn't over. The Philistines think Dagon is on top. 
They think they're living on high, but the Lord God is going to bring them all low, all the way to the grave, in fact, as we read. So then notice in verse 23, and actually, um, let me mention, mention this too. You could break down the section that we're in to like three different parts. So try to keep in mind the whole narrative through it all. But the first section, verse 23 to 27, we can call it the mocking of Yahweh. And then in 28 to 30, we have the result of the mocking of God, which is the vindication of his honor. And then lastly, verse 31, the burial of Samson. So verse 23 begins this mocking of God at this section. And so we read that the lords of the Philistines have all gathered together. These five lords, remember it was, it was these five lords of the Philistines that came and approached Delilah and said, hey, entice him, trap him, figure out what is the source of his strength. Uh, there's no way of knowing how much time has gone on since the capture of, of Samson. We know that when he was captured, they put him to work grinding grain. And in our text here, we read that he's actually in prison. He's in a Philistine jail. So maybe it's that he sleeps in the prison and then when they are ready to go put him to work, they take him out. We have no idea, or maybe they've moved him to a whole other place. We, we don't know. Whatever the case, though, they're having a party, and the reason for that is because that, so that they can offer sacrifices to their god, Dagon, to their deity. It's the generic word for God here. It's Elohim in verse 23. And they're rejoicing, we read. They are ecstatic. They, uh, did you notice what it said in, in verse um, 25 when their hearts were married? So there's probably a lot of alcohol flowing. There's a lot of wine flowing at this party. You can imagine the kind of debauchery that would take place at a pagan religious festival in which sacrifices are going to be made. Probably all kinds of drunkenness, all kinds of immorality, uh, those types of things are taking place at this religious party. And look at their chant. Look at their confession, their catechism answer, as it were, there at the end of verse 23. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Now, that's just wrong, right? It wasn't their God that did that. Dagon didn't do a doggone thing. See what I did there? <laughs> I was proud of myself for that, actually. Yeah, I was proud of myself for that one. I was just right off. I was like, flowed right out as I was studying. See if Docent has that one. So it was, it was Yahweh who gave Samson over to them. You remember that, right? The spirit of the Lord left him. We read at verse 20 last week. And so this is just foolishness on the part of the Philistines. They really are pretty stupid, but there's actually a spiritual blindness to them. They can't see the truth because the true God did not choose to reveal himself to them. They are indulging their sin. They are disgracing Yahweh, but they have no idea that they're even doing that. They're mocking God, but they're not even aware of Yahweh. They have pitted their false god against Samson, not realizing that Samson, in fact, is representing Yahweh. And more on that in a moment. The Philistines here are just totally ignorant of what is actually going on. So verse 24, they continue in their delusion, thinking that it's Dagon that has given Samson into their hand, not knowing that it's Yahweh who did it. They're mocking God, and they don't even know it. Friends, this is part of the deceitfulness of sin that I mentioned last week. They are boasting as if the true God doesn't exist. Their worship is misplaced. They are prideful. They are in essence, just like the Assyrians that Isaiah wrote about in his, his prophetic book in chapters 8 through 10. We went, we went there before, so I'll just remind you of what happens at that point, what God says at that point. 
Um, Israel is in rebellion to God. They've, they, you know, like the time of the judges, just same thing uh, later on in the period of the kings. Israel is synchronized with the nations around them and worshiping false gods. And so in the time of the prophet Isaiah, um, God is going to send another nation, Assyria, to them as a form of judgment to bring upon them chastisement so they might repent and, and seek Yahweh afresh and in truth and in you know, humility. And so what happens is he says that Assyria is going to go do that and they're going to do it out of their own pleasure, out of their own desire. And they don't actually realize that they are an axe in the hand of God, that God is using them like as a person would to chop wood, and the wood in this case is Israel. And Assyria is just doing it because they want to do it. But then also, as the story progresses towards chapter 10, he, God notes that Assyria is going to be judged for their actions as well because they don't boast in God. Let the axe not boast. That's exactly what it says, right? It actually quotes... Um, the, Assyria is the axe in God's hand, and they don't give Yahweh credit. They boast in themselves. And so the text actually says that, uh, that the axe, should the, should the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw over him who wields it? The answer is, of course, no, right? So they're just the tool in the hand of God, and they're going to be judged for what they do because they're not, they're not designed to give God glory just like the Philistines here are not. And Assyria would be judged for their pride. Assyria's evil intentions, their sinful desires, deceive them. Same thing is going on here with the Philistines. They think Dagon has done this, but they're blinded. Their pride has them in darkness, as it were. Remember the whole narrative about Samson, was about Samson, uh, or with Samson, was about God putting a divide between Israel and the Philistines. At this point, you know, Israel has just totally embraced the Philistines. They're even marrying them. They're, not, uh, they're worshiping their gods. And so God is using Samson to specifically you know, bring a divide between Israel and the Philistines. What was, how did he say it in the beginning? Do you remember that he was going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines? And it doesn't actually come total, to fruition until David uh, takes the reign. But God is soon going to make them look dumb again. And in just a moment, he's going to do that. We have to remember that God is the first cause, but their blindness is actually kind of ironic. The fact that the Philistines are blind to the reality that God is the one who did this, not their false God. It's ironic because they make Samson blind. And there's a reason for that. Remember we talked about it before because Samson is like this parallel of Israel. He's a, a representative of Israel, and Israel was guilty of doing what, whatever was right in their eyes during this time. Samson even said that himself. He saw the woman at Timnah, and she was right in his eyes. And so there was a specific purpose, a theological purpose, that was, being, that was meant to be conveyed with the Philistines blinding Samson. But the reality is, is that the Philistines themselves are actually blind to the truth as well. They're blind to the reality that God is the one who is in control of all things. There's a lesson there. Uh, but the, the irony is lost on these Philistines because they are the ones who are in fact blind. They are like what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. says, In whom the God of this world, which I would take as that to mean Satan, there's some debate upon that. It says, in, in whom the God of this world 
hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. Now, Satan is the tool of God as well, right? He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. We talked about that last week. And in sin's deceitfulness, he plays a part. The Philistines' mind is blinded, but yet here they are rejoicing that Samson is blind. Now listen, don't, don't think that this is some sort of sin that could only have been accomplished you know, at a state level, at a nation level, like Assyria and the Philistines. Or don't think that this is some sin that is only applicable in ancient times. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is true for every person alive. Ever, every person who has ever heard a plain gospel proclamation, either after the cross or a veiled gospel proclamation that happened before the cross. Even today, people who go about their life after hearing the gospel are actually just like these Philistines, not giving glory to God to whom it actually belongs. And when that happens today, and as in the example of the Philistines, when what people are in fact are doing is mocking God. Well, it's what the apostle Paul actually calls sowing to the flesh. Maybe the person who just lives today with no regard for God, if it isn't as plain as it was here at the Philistines, but make no mistake, it is still the same thing. People today who live as in, with no regard to the true God, are, in, are reaping to the flesh and are mocking God. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 6 in your Bible, in the New Testament. So keep your finger back in Judges so we can come back. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, if you see Colossians, go left a little bit. is 7 and 8. It says, Do not be deceived, for God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, will, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So you see, God cannot be mocked. When a person doesn't acknowledge God in their life, they are, in fact, mocking him. You could simply be going to school, playing on a sports team, turning in your homework, working a job, living the so-called American dream or your best life, and if you're neglecting God in all of that, you are, in fact, mocking God. You are not reaping according to the Spirit, or sowing according to the Spirit. You are sowing according to the flesh. And God won't be mocked forever. It will run out. It ran out for Samson, didn't it? He played a dangerous game that eventually ran out on him. But again, sin is deceptive. Uh, for the person living today especially, the person who is neglecting the devotion that they owe to God since God is their creator, they're mocking God just as sure as the Philistines are here. The mockery displayed by the Philistines is severe, of course. It's true. There's actually something here that is um, disgraceful for Israel as well. The Philistines simply think that Samson is their enemy. And why is that? Why do the Philistines simply see Samson as their enemy? They don't believe God. Well, I, I think it gets a little bit deeper than that. It's because Israel's testimony has been so bad. In other places of Scripture, we see the fight as being between Yahweh and the false god of the opposing nation. Remember, like, Yahweh versus the prophets, Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Who's going to do it? Yahweh or Baal at that point in Elijah? Well, here, it's Samson versus 
Dagon. Israel's testimony of God has resulted in a horrible reputation for him. He's not even being acknowledged. And the reason for that is because they weren't committed to Yahweh at all. Do you ever think about that, you guys? Do you ever think about how your life tells the world about God? The things you say, the, the words that you choose to use, the activities you choose to engage in, all of it provides a testimony to the world about the God that you say that you serve, whether you're intending for it to do so or not. Israel at this point was not committed to God at all at this juncture, but even think about partial commitment. I mean, even the unbelieving world knows that Christians go to church on Sunday. That's pretty much common knowledge around across the whole world where the gospel has been preached you know, at length. That's pretty common. And so when you're not at church on a Sunday morning, that says something to the world. It says one thing to a stranger who doesn't know you, but what about the person who does know you, that, who does know you knows that you claim to be a Christian? At the very best, it says God doesn't really care. It says God, God doesn't really mind about you going to church. It communicates to them that it's fine to have other things before God. Get that, right? It could say much worse to that. Uh, it could say much worse than that to them. Of course, uh, it could communicate to them that Yahweh is not even real. That uh, it's just so it's not a big deal at all. I've shared this with before some of you guys, but as you know, I didn't grow up a Christian. Uh, the first time I stepped foot in a Protestant church, I was 22 years old, going on 23, close to 23. But growing up, I had plenty of friends that said they were Christian. Kids I went to school with, one of whom in particular lived on my street, and we, he would be gone on Wednesday nights and Sundays, and usually that would like mess up our plans for hanging out and stuff. But at the same time, all these professing Christians that I know still hung that I hung out with, I'm sure there were, of course, there were many Christians that I didn't hang around with because we were so different, but these ones who professed to be Christian, who went to church on Wednesday and Sunday, um, they did the exact same things that I did. They had the same life that I did. The guy on my street, especially, uh, we did the same drugs, committed the same crimes, lived the same life. The only difference was that they said they believed in Jesus, or and he specifically said he believed in Jesus, and he would go to church. So, you know, we would talk about, you know, why would you go? Why, why even go to church? Because, like, I didn't have that desire, and I did all, I lived my life the way I was living it, and they were living their, their life the same exact way, except for that church involvement. And it never really got anywhere. But by the time I was 18 years old, I was a very convinced atheist who, you know, believed the so-called science. And I had no respect for Christianity, especially the kind my friends practiced. They had ruined God's reputation before me, and their witness was a big reason, not the only reason, of course, but a big reason, a big contributor uh, to what I thought about God. So commitment matters. How you live your life matters for a number of different reasons. The application we're considering tonight is for the reputation that our God has in the world, uh, the world that we live in. I saw on Twitter earlier today something that captures this, Matt B. Redmond, not the singer, I think at least, Matt Redmond, I don't think the same guy, but he said, commit yourself to the church in the same way suburban parents commit to travel ball. So if you know about travel sports, that is a huge commitment. Like you are, you have to sacrifice things to do travel ball. And because it, it demands so much time, it demands purposeful sacrifice. 
And don't get confused about the statement about the church here. Uh, to be committed to the church is to be committed to Christ because the church is Christ's body. That's all that he means by that. I, I would take it at least. Now, the result of their bad testimony for Israel here in Judges 16 is that the Philistines had only Samson in their sight. They weren't even thinking about Yahweh at all. They weren't even thinking about God. Samson had, or, or their pride in defeating Samson had grown to extraordinary heights. So verse 25, they call him out of the prison to have him entertain them, and they make him stand between some pillars. Now, I'm not sure what he had to do to entertain them. We don't really know. It says it another time as well. Maybe he just stood there so that the people could like mock him and you know, spit on him and degrade him and say things like that. I don't think that he's like juggling or something. You know, I don't, I don't know what he would be doing to entertain them. I think he's just there as a, as a spectacle. Here is, this, here is this mighty man who is now you know, a broken, blind man. But this whole event is um, similar to something else that will happen in Israel's future when Babylon will conquer them. And there, King Belshazzar will be hosting a party. And at that party, do you remember what happens? They bring out the, the vessels, the gold, the silver, the wood, all the vessels that were taken from the temple when Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the temple. And they bring them out, and they're partying. They're already feeling good. They've already had too much wine and whatever else they were using. And they start drinking out of that, and more sin is abounding. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a giant hand appears and writes on the wall, a finger, and it writes on the wall. And then eventually... So um, you messed up. <laughs> essentially, right? Um, eventually, they have that, that, yeah, that famous sign, chapter 5, with the, the giant hand. And it conveys what he wrote on the wall was Aramaic. And it conveys the message, basically, that he was going to lose the kingdom. And then he ends up dying that very night. What were they doing in all of that? Taking the vessels out, mocking God. Mocking God. Essentially the exact same thing. Their pride had brought them here. The same thing that the Philistines were doing. But in this case, Samson is kind of like the vessels from the temple and the hand as well. This is where their pride has bought them. So we get some details in 26 and 27. Samson is blind. and So he asked for help from a young man to place his hands on the pillars that were near. These pillars supposedly support the whole building, the whole roof. Presumably, the supporting pillars are in the center of the room. We are not really told. Then verse 27 reminds us again that the lords of the Philistines were there. So this is like the whole political power of the Philistines, right? The five most powerful people, men, the ones who made decisions for the nation and itself, they're all here. And then also on top of that, the house was full of men and women, and then there were another 3,000 men and women on the roof of this building. So this is a huge, huge, you know, temple to Dagon. It's a massive building, 3,000 people on the roof. Presumably then, same amount of people down below, maybe a little bit more even. So at six to 7,000 people total at this place, we're not sure. And that brings us to the next section, the result of mocking God, the vindication of his honor. Immediately, we should notice this change that we see in Samson in these short verses that was absent since we first met him back in chapter 13. Samson is humble. He's been humbled by God. He is humble now, and he knows that he needs the Lord. No more self-reliance from this man. No more you know, playing, playing games, as it were, like he was with Delilah. And so we read that Samson calls to the Lord. It's all caps, right? Capital L-O-R-D. We know what that is. 
he's saying Yahweh, and he says, O Lord God, O Adonai Yahweh, sovereign Yahweh, in other words, God who is in control. He's, he's reaching out to God like that. He knows now that he's not in control, but that Yahweh is sovereign. He is the Adonai, and that it is his help that is, is needed. And there was a quote that I mentioned last week uh, from John Flavel, the Puritan, one like this. He said, outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses. Remember what he means then? Like you could be doing really well on the outside culturally, but that might mean that you're suffering spiritually, distant from God, even though you're doing good by human reasoning. And we saw that with Samson, certainly. You know, he lived an immoral, godless life for the most part, yet he had a lot of outward success. He kept, you know, destroying the Philistine, and he was undefeated up until this recent point. But then John Flavel also said, inward gains are ordinarily attached to outward losses. Samson's lost his eyes. He's lost his strength. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his fame, his family, his dignity, his respect. He's basically lost it all. But with this massive loss, he's gained humility. He's gained a sense of his need for Yahweh. He's gained what he should have had the whole time. You would think that the judge would have. This is sometimes why we pray, like when we're praying for a person to receive Christ, we pray that God would do whatever it takes to bring him or her low. It sounds weird. Maybe at first, like, why would you want this person to suffer? But sometimes that's what it takes to have a person see their need for God. They have to lose it all because they're, they're, they're full of pride and they're making a mockery of God with their life until they are brought low and humbled and they they hit that so-called rock bottom. And then the hope is there at that rock bottom, they meet the rock of ages. They find Christ. Outward loss often brings inward gain. And that's the case for Samson here. And so his prayer is, remember me and strengthen me so I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Is it audible? Is it in his head? Can, I, can the Philistines around him hear that? Or is it just in his head? Is he praying out of the overflow of his heart? Or is it out loud? I don't know. We don't know. Uh, most commentaries at this point question his motives. They say, well, like, well, is this, this is him getting revenge. Is Samson, is he thinking of himself here at this point? I'm not convinced that's the case. It could be. I'm not convinced that's the case, though. Uh, his address to God tells me otherwise. And it's also the reality that he's saying, please. He's like, please strengthen me. Please, excuse me, he says, please strengthen me. Please remember me. But remember also, Samson is a parallel to Israel. He represents Israel and Israel's God. And so it's as as if Samson is saying he's finally going to put that wedge between the Philistines and Israel that should have always been there. And you won't actually hear about the Philistines any longer in Judges. There's still chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 left to go in this book. No mention of the Philistines in the rest of the book. So are they not ruling Israel anymore? It doesn't say. It just turns after this. It's just going to turn inwardly. And you're going to see them fighting amongst themselves and having issues amongst the different tribes. Big issues. But the Philistines are still around, right? Because eventually it was Saul. He goes against them, and then David and Goliath 
you know, so they lost their power structure for a significant, a significant amount. The five lords yeah. are donezo. They turn to the big people to help them out. Right. So, verse 29 to 30, Samson stretches out his arms between the two pillars, and he pushes on them, and he says, let me die with the Philistines. Perhaps there's a sense of God's justice here at this point. Perhaps he knows that he deserves death for his actions, that he can't have his victory apart from his death. Not sure. Nevertheless, it happens, and this ends up being his greatest achievement. Thousands are possibly dead as a result of this. Was it all six or 7,000? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. All it says is that there were more killed at his death than in his life. How many were killed in his life? Thousands. 1,030? Plus 30. That's all we know. Randos at the gate. If he killed any randos at the gate, we don't know. So at least 1,030 that we know of. He so probably killed random ones stuff that's not mentioned. The lion. 20 years. <laughs> Can we count the lion? One lion. <laughs> yeah. So, he, might, he might have killed a few bees to get that honey. He sure. might have, yeah. So we don't know exactly how many, but the, nevertheless, the text is clear. He was more here at his death than in his life. Now, initially I was thinking about addressing the topic of suicide here, but I, I thought we had other more important things to address with our time in the text, yeah, and right. so I wasn't, won't be saying much <laughs> about that. Hopefully you guys had some decent discussion on that topic in your small group. But for a long time, it would appear at least even as far back as to the 1700s, because John Gill in his commentary writes about this. Uh, People have talked about this passage as an example of suicide. And there's lots of other implications to consider with suicide. But even John Gill, who lived over 300 years ago, he notes that this isn't rightly called a suicide. This really actually isn't even comparable to a suicide at all. Uh, this isn't even comparable to like a suicide bomber or a kamikaze pilot, honestly. You'd be mixing categories here if you make that error. And people do make that error. I'm just telling you, you could be aware of that, that if you Google Samson suicide, people think that's what this is. But I think that's wrong. Um, what this is more like is a sacrificial death. Not to appease God, but he sacrificed, he gave up his own life so that the enemies of Yahweh would come under God's holy judgment, and he did it so that Israel may live. So that the course of Israel's trajectory wouldn't go so far down south and out the tubes. Again, you don't hear about the Philistines in this anymore, and they had total domination over Israel to the point of where the Philistines weren't really even aware of Yahweh anymore. So that, of course, um, just like with many other examples in the book so far, we see elements of his life, Samson's life, that end up reminding us of the gospel. That reminds us of what Jesus would also do, but on a, what Jesus would do on a bigger and a perfect scale in comparison to Samson. So he's, he's different than Jesus, of course, right? Samson was rarely obedient, maybe never really obedient even. We didn't really read anything good uh, on his account, whereas Jesus was perfectly obedient. He never once sinned. Samson couldn't impute or credit righteousness to anyone. He was a sinner who needed grace just like myself and all of you guys. Uh, But Jesus' holy life and his earned status of righteousness is imputed or accredited to us through faith, uh, to everyone who believes in him. As a matter of fact, Jesus' righteousness is the only hope that any of us have of being declared righteous before God. It's the only hope for justification. You don't add to it. You don't keep it. Uh, You don't have to do good works to make it certain. 
It is just Jesus' holy life that is accounted for us as righteousness. Uh, and it makes us able to have salvation. And further, Samson only saved a small group of people in comparison. Only those that were alive at the time of this act. Sure, he prolongated Israel as part of God's covenant promise. That's, that's of course, true. But Jesus' action was cosmic in proportion or in comparison. His death was satisfying the wrath of God against any person who would ever uh, believe. Any saved person who lived before Jesus went to the cross, and any saved person who any person who would be saved after Jesus went to the cross as well. And there are interesting parallels even in their deaths. Uh, that act in Samson's death that act as a shadow of the reality that we see in Christ. I mean, both Jesus and Samson were betrayed by a friend. Right? Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Samson was betrayed by Delilah. Both died with their arms stretched out. Both appeared to be defeated before actually gaining victory through death. Both were in chains and mocked before dying. But there's one key difference that we mustn't overlook, and that's that what we read in Samson, the third category here, the third section, is Samson was buried in verse 31. His family buried him in his father's tomb, and we read at that point that he judged Israel for 20 years. And that's it. That's the end of Samson's story. Samson didn't emerge out of the rubble in three days, right? Whereas Christ, when he died, he emerged out of that cave, out of that tomb on the third day. It's Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that accomplishes salvation in our lives. It's the covenant of redemption, the, the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit applied to save a people, applied to us through the covenant of grace, the new covenant, that is our hope. Nothing else, friends, nothing else at all. Not our own efforts. We could be mockers of God, like Samson often was, like the Philistines certainly were. I certainly was at one point in my life. Mocking God reaps destruction. Not acknowledging God and being thankful because he is your creator reaps destruction. But thanks be to God that Jesus took all of that and all other offenses of his elect upon himself. God and his gospel in the person and work of Christ is our only hope, you guys. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can have forgiveness. It is only in Christ that we can have salvation. So trust him. He's, he, in, there is no other way uh, to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which man and men or woman, young or old, may be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful to you for your word and for the examples that you give to us. We think of even what you wrote through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, how you preserved these stories for us as examples that we might be warned by them, that we would take heed lest we fall. And so, Lord, we ask for forgiveness of the sin in our life that remains. We don't want to be proud. We want to have no uh, pride that would uh, detract from your glory. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to care much about your reputation and so that our lives would be conformed to Christ, that we would imitate you as you tell us to again and in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, to be imitators of you. And so we pray that you would help us to do that, that when people see our lives, they might think rightly about you and fear you rightly because we know that the beginning of knowledge is the fear of you, Yahweh. So please, Lord, help us to be 
totally satisfied in you and help us to always remember the gospel, our only hope of salvation. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.